Hello and welcome to the 35th episode of Tailoring in Conversation. My name is Reza and in this series I'll be talking to tailors, business owners, cloth merchants and other industry participants from all around the globe to gain a better insight into their worlds. My guest for today is Jeffrey Diduch, joining us from New York. Most of us know Jeffrey from his blog, Tutto Fatto Amano, in which he shared his research by dissecting both bespoke and factory garments, but also documenting his own personal projects. He's now the Senior Vice President of Design at Hickey Freeman and Samuelson. In our conversation today, we're going to be talking about the differences between bespoke and mass production, upcoming technologies, innovation, and much more. Let's go. Jeffrey, uh, as you know, as I've just told you, I've got a tremendous amount of respect for you. And you. I was first introduced by a, a friend of mine who is also a tailor uh, to, to your blog back in 2014. And we were, I just started tailoring and we were kind of like struggling with buttonholes. And he said, you know, you have to look at this blog and there's this guy, he makes perfect buttonholes and he uses GIMP. And I was like, what the hell is GIMP? <laughs> and so we were kind of like looking at all these uh, posts that you were putting out there. And then later on, when I went on Savile Row, you, you were the guy who rips shit open and, uh, and exposes the crap inside them. That's what I was kind of like told. So, um, thank you very much for, for spending the time with me. Um, how are you doing? First of all, I'm doing well. I'm, I've never been busier. Um, you know, it's, it was for two years of COVID when nobody was wearing tailored clothing, it was tough for us. And we were all wondering what was going to happen when we came out as everybody's mm. used to wearing their, their, their pajamas that nobody's going to want to dress up anymore. And we're finding that now after two years of pajamas, people are ready to dress up. And so we've had a really, really intense um, reopening. I can imagine. My, my friend Matthew did an interview with you uh, on the Common Threads podcast where he asked you about your background and where you came from, what you did. And, uh, and I will certainly be promoting that once this interview gets out. Um, but just very briefly, because uh, you're, you're mostly famous for your buttonholes, as you say, but, uh, in your, on your blog, but also for your blog. <laughs> so, Actually, my husband wrote that on it. He's sort of the administrator of that <laughs> stuff now, and, and he was poking fun at me, and I was like, take that down. He said, no, I'm leaving it on. <laughs> well, I, I, can, I, I can understand. That, that's fine. If, for, the per for the people who haven't been following anything beyond your blog, can you very briefly just describe how you got into the industry, um, wh what your main chapters were and what you're doing now, and then we'll dive into some of the topics that I'd like to cover with you. Um, tailoring has been in my family for many generations, and um, my mother taught me to sew at a very young age. It was mostly just a way to keep me busy and keep me out of trouble. Um, but as I grew up, I, I enjoyed it. I was fascinated by it, um, especially about the, the very sculptural elements of tailoring. Um, I was very heavily influenced by the early work of uh, Balenciaga uh, and some of the early couturiers, um, just the fit and the, and, and, and the shape that they could achieve uh, fascinated me. So, um, yeah, I think I was around 14 years old when I made my first tuxedo and I just, and I mean, sewing and making clothes was to be a hobby for me. I was going to be a musician um, long story, I ended up 
changing directions and instead of doing music i decided to do clothing um ended up in in montreal to do an internship after school in order to finish school and by accident ended up at samuelson um which was a, a maker of, of full canvas tailored clothing that i had been aware of for quite a while because i had found a jacket made by them in a thrift shop and while i had stuff from armani and boss and versace and all sorts of other things there was something special about this garment and I couldn't tell you why it just it fit better and it felt better and it was just a lot of things and so when when some people came to where I was working and said um, our boss the the production manager at Samuelson wants to meet you because they had seen that I was making a suit for myself um, it was uh, I don't know it was a special little moment of fate that I accidentally ended up in the tailored clothing ready to wear industry and have been doing that for oh 26 27 years now. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm happy that it happened because I, I do believe that at the very least for, for people who like me who started fairly like just a few years ago, um, your blog was has had a lot of impact and not necessarily, you know, as, as a book page to page would have impact, but just the fact that someone is out there thinking about how and why things are made the way they are and has the curiosity of... I don't know, a four-year-old. Uh, and, and so, you know, reading through your blog, and I reread it uh, in the last week just to kind of like refresh my memory, how you wrote or, or write about the things that you're unpicking and opening up and kind of like working on doesn't sound like someone who knows it all and is just opening stuff to criticize. It's, it's, it's really like, oh, this is interesting. Maybe I should try this out. So were you like this as... A, a, as a younger kid and or as a musician even or you know are do your young do your younger friends know you uh like the the the, the person who questioned everything and, and was very curious so i i didn't really fully realize this about myself and where it came from until recently um when my husband said well your sister's the same way you're both researchers and um mm -hmm. my father was an engineer with the national research council of canada and right. so we grew up going to see him at work where they had wind tunnels and wave tanks and stuff where they studied things and mm -hmm. they did experiments and he would bring things home from work to play with long before they were publicly available um and so i was exposed to all sorts of stuff mm -hmm. as a kid mm -hmm. and just the concept you know the curiosity and and if you want to know about something you know my dad seemed to have all the answers but he wouldn't give them to us he would teach us how to find the answers lovely um, mm. and and so you know while my mother taught me how to sew my father taught me how to be curious mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and I mean, it's it's no secret that in the industry we look at other people's garments we study them um, we always have and uh, I just at one point thought, well, I mean, if I'm doing this, uh, maybe somebody else would, would benefit from it. And so mm -hmm. it was between that and uh, discovering Ask Andy and Style Forum um, mm -hmm. right around the time that I started blogging. And I feel bad that I haven't written much of anything for a long time because people still send me garments to look at. And I look at them and they're interesting, but it takes a lot of time to do those posts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It takes a lot I can of time. Imagine. Yeah, yeah. You need an assistant to unpick things for you, I believe. Well, I'm working on that. I'm working on that. And there may be some videos coming and yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very good. 
it, it felt like I'd stopped talking or I had nothing left to say, which wasn't entirely true. It's just, I didn't have the time to, to put it out mm-hmm. in format. I even feel, I look back and I was like, oh, I, I couldn't even be bothered to spell check back then. Yeah. 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 Well, I can imagine if you, if you, as you're kind of like developing and your knowledge compounds and you're engaged in projects that take a lot of thought work and a lot of energy, um, that perhaps you're not in the moment as you were unpicking those things, but you're maybe like two years ahead, three years ahead, thinking through all the projects that you're involved with. So I can understand if, if you're like, well, yeah, you know, opening another lapel, you know, what what's that going to do? I've, I've seen like probably like a, a few hundred of them, um, even though your curiosity may not uh, have been disappearing. Um, what I find interesting about you is that you're kind of like a mediator and I don't know if that's the right word, but you're kind of like in the middle between mass production and, and tradition. And so you are aware and you know very well the bespoke, the traditional bespoke tailoring techniques on multiple garments. But you're also someone who's spent an extensive amount of time on, on, on uh, factory floors. So and, and we, we both know that since like the Industrial uh, Revolution, People have just had this tension between automation and and things that are handmade and have a soul and are are humane and whatsoever. I don't know much about manufacturing and the people behind it, uh, but I'm sure you you can at least shed some light uh, on this. Who are the people, and I mean uh, professionally from uh, with a with a background. Uh, who are the people behind the design designing of processes that create automated garments? Who designs the machinery? Who designs the processes? Uh, what sort of background do they have? Uh, and, and, and so let's take it from there and we'll see how that develops. That would be a combination of people, someone like myself, who's the, the pattern designer um, and a person or team of industrial engineers who study ergonomics, who study movement, um, who are trained in these things. Um, you know, it began in, in the late 1800s and really hit its heyday uh, in the early 1900s. And a lot of the machines that we use now were designed back then. There hasn't mm-hmm. been a lot of real newness since then. There have been improvements and um, things have become computerized, but a lot of it was done back then where there was this explosion of, I don't even know what to call it. Um, and, you know, a lot of it was centered right here in the United States, in, in particular here in Higgy Freeman. Um, mm. So it's, you know, it's it's where we get together and either creatively, I said, this is, you know, something I want to achieve. How do we do it efficiently and consistently? Mm. And that's where, you know, the quality team and the engineers will all get together and study it and say, okay, what's the best way of doing this? Would you say that the majority of those people you've worked with who are involved in those projects are people with a, with a tailoring background per se, like a traditional tailoring background? Most, if not all of the, the good quality people, and by quality people, I mean, you know, the vice president of quality, um, mm-hmm had gone to the tailor shop at the age of 12 back in Italy sort of thing. They had that background. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the, the engineers, you know, they came out of engineering school with engineering Mm -hmm. degrees, how they ended up in the clothing industry. Search me. You'd have to ask them. Um, Mm -hmm. They didn't necessarily have a, 
background in tailored clothing or in any kind of clothing, but just industrial processes. I see, I see. Uh, and what would you say were, at least from your experience and your observation, what were the main differences between the ones who did have a tailoring background in their thinking and, and, and the working out of, of some process that would be able to sustain itself? What were the differences in their thinking between the traditional tailors or people with a tailoring background and those who were just pure engineers, mechanical, thinking things through, you know, um, in, in all the smallest details? Well, I, I think maybe a more apt comparison is, is so I have some friends who worked at Bombardier, the, the, okay. the plane maker, and yeah. they, they were always stunned at the amount of time and the amount of effort that went into our manufacturing and how complicated it could be. And they're like, that's not complicated. We make planes. That's complicated. <laughs> yeah. And I said, yeah, but when you make a plane, your piece of metal is not moving, it's not changing, it's not shifting, and it's consistent, mm -hmm. and it's the same from day to day, and the same size, and same shape, and same everything. Mm -hmm. When you're making clothing, mm -hmm. it's different cloth, different shape. There's there's things that that change and go wrong and shift, and all sorts of stuff yeah. happening. And you can't just mechanize a process like that where every time you do exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so people who had that sort of understanding, um, especially, you know, the, the the top management that I've worked in that had backgrounds who who grew up in the industry because their parents had factories or tailor shops, they were always the best ones. Like I always felt mm -hmm. that, you know, people who who sat down on a sewing machine in their lives were the ones that sort of really truly understood and could better manage, um, even if it was just you know managing people within the place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see, I see. And one of the things I've always been curious about is when you are about to design, let's say, uh, some sort of a new sewing machine, or you're about to design a sewing machine that does a very particular, performs a particular part on the garment, like a color machine or a sleeve machine or a padding machine. Obviously, a big team of just pure engineers are behind, you know, the mechanics of that and, 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 and the workings. But I assume that if you are, for example, designing a sleeve machine, you also have to understand, at least to some degree, uh, the whole uh, the whole well, anatomy or the or the mechanics of a sleeve uh, to kind of like uh, design around that. How, how many of those machines are, are designed with tailors involved, let's say, than just pure engineers? All of them. I mean, you, you, you can't make a machine like that without involvement. In fact, I was working with our engineers this week on mm -hmm. specifically sleeve setting machines. Right. And they wanted to understand, okay, how much fullness are you putting in where, like as a percentage or a value? Because it's mm -hmm. not consistent. You just you don't just say, okay, I'm putting in two inches of fullness and just spread it out evenly around the whole armhole. Yes. There's a certain amount here, a different amount here, a different amount here. A and so I had to give them an understanding of how much I want where so that mm -hmm. they can set up the programs and the amount that the belt feeds so I get mm -hmm. the results I want. Right, right. So from, from what I'm understanding now based on the few uh, answers you've given is that there is a team of engineers who does the main engineering, but they are always in close communication with the tailors so that they un so that they know what it is that they are eventually 
engineering and and they take their cues from the tailors but the actual engineering is done by the engineers is is that roughly the the kind of like uh idea there most often but it's not you know restricted to that for example right now we're working on algorithms to draft patterns based on body scans and body measurements and as i think about you know the traditional drafting methods and the limitations to them and i think about how better to capture the human form and is there different ways to analyze measurement i'm i'm starting to think up different contraptions that i would need to build in order to capture certain measurements or you know accurately represent that and then mm -hmm. i think through well it's difficult in real life because people are moving around and to establish landmarks that could shift or it well if i had them in 3d and it's static and i actually put markings or i can split them up or i can make their arm disappear or do all sorts of things um mm -hmm. it opens up a whole new world um so in a sense you know instead of designing machines right now i'm designing software maybe mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. just an extension of it I see, I see. And would you, would you say that <clears throat> you're now using most of your, in, in the process of, for example, working on a software, are you mainly using your tailoring knowledge or are you using your engineering knowledge and, and the new knowledge maybe that you're kind of like learning as, as you're progressing into these projects? I see the craft of tailoring as a specific form of engineering. So I don't right. think, see them as distinct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's all one and the same to me. Yes, yes, yes. I understand. I understand. In fact, I, yeah. I remember seeing, I'm pretty sure it was you, in fact, and I don't know where I saw it, but I think you were discussing uh, the, the shaping of a shoulder pad for a pagoda shoulder, and I thought, hmm, I like the guy. This the, the way this guy thinks. Like it, it, it was it was very similar to how I approach problems. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree. I I also think that it is engineering. You see, there is one one thing I've noticed is that there there are artisans who don't necessarily see the process that they perform as engineering in the sense that look engineering is not per se a process it's everything can be decomposed as it's an element on its own right and and you could I, I think i read this on your blog it was like you make up a bunch of rules and if the rules don't work you make new rules that's someone said that to you i believe yeah and, and and so i think when you have a, a foundation of thinking like that you don't create um, holy boundaries around a given process. So the reason why I'm kind of like going back and forth on tailoring, engineering, and a little bit looking at them separately is that when I speak to tailors, and not all of them, but some of them, um, they think that engineering on itself is just something to do with mechanical processes where the dynamical, the dynamics that you're uh, describing that clothing has, you know, one day the fabric is different, or, uh, you know, where that dynamic landscape isn't there. They just see it like, look, these are a few processes. They work on everything. They work on all fabrics. They work on all figures. You just do that and, you know, don't mess around with how you could turn this flap more efficiently. Now, I understand that's a bit closed-minded thinking or, you know, a, a, a severe respect to the process that they've been taught. But, 
there is a point in 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 the tension of look if we are going to have this whole engineering uh, of of tailored garments and we're going to have all these automated machines what is going to be left of the craft that we are performing you know as as traditional handcrafted uh, artisan or handcraft tailors you know what i mean so being having been in both worlds if we get to a point where all the garments are at least brought to a level of sophistication where you can't see a difference between a tailored garment, a handmade tailored garment, and a machine-made garment. What what does that mean for the traditional bespoke tailor? What 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 does it say about their work? Oh, I have so much I would love to say on that subject and the response to that question. Um, but I'll start by saying, in fact, I won't say it. Peter Thiel said it in his book Zero to One. Um, something to the effect of uh, Google making headlines because their supercomputers were able to recognize a picture of a cat with 75% accuracy by looking at YouTube thumbnails. And everybody was very impressed until someone said, yeah, but any four-year-old can do that with 100% accuracy. So, so what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his <laughs> point was that humans are very good at certain things and not so good at others. And machines are very good at certain things and not so good at others. So why attempt to fully automate certain things that would be so difficult to mm. to do when instead you could harness the skills of both mm -hmm. and make them complementary mm -hmm. um, and get better results. And it, the same can be said of tailoring is that at certain point, when does it not make sense to try to automate something? Mm -hmm. when When do we need the human's ability to evaluate? and adjust on the fly. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that as things become more mechanized, and we, I mean, we've already seen it in the last 10, 15 years, as things become more the same, there's the backlash to it, where mm -hmm. people are more interested in things that aren't the same, that aren't mm -hmm. cranked out of factories and that look very, very consistent. Um, it's why you know the unevenness of hand stitching has become appealing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of talk about the metaverse and the effects this will have on the fashion industry and, you know, discussion about doing things. Oh, it's great because we can do stuff in, in 3D that we could never be able to make in real life. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people were saying, well, where does that leave us in the real world? Are we all going to end up in pods like in the Matrix where... Mm -hmm. um, because it's so fascinating in the metaverse, nobody will want to pay attention to real life. And I think the opposite will happen. Because as we're talking about um, doing garments and things and effects in 3D that you couldn't do in real life, I think a backlash will occur where it'll be something to say, well, yes, I can accomplish this in real life. Mm -hmm. Sure, you can make a perfect fit in 3D, but can you do that in real life? Or can you actually yes. craft a shoulder, like mm -hmm. a pagoda shoulder, shoulder in real life? Do you can you do it with your hands and with, and so I, I think that will create a similar kind of backlash, like this, the whole sort of craft everything um, mm -hmm. that, you know, in the last, I don't know, 15 years that we've seen. Do you, do you think that if the metaverse at some point develops to such extent that you have, you know, all the types of different clothing shops that, that you can have and all the, different skins and suits people can kind of like download. Do you think that that's going to be 
like you say, bring such a backlash that people say, look, we're now really not into the real world. And so at the same time, the real world kind of like starts to gain more of a weight uh, than it did maybe like 20 years ago. So then to that extreme, where do you then see rate ready to wear a made to measure in between the real world handmade stuff and the metaverse? What happens to the to the factory made garment then? Do you, does it run a risk of or of some sorts? I, so I don't think ready to wear will exist in ten years, maybe sooner. I don't know. I mean, what's the point of it if we can get to the point where we can efficiently manufacture something that will fit you better and that mm -hmm. is really what you want and the right colors and right everything that mm -hmm. we're not making it advanced so that we've got leftover and we have waste and I mean it really doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, it means that manufacturers have to get better at on-demand production. It mm -hmm. means that there's enormous pressure on supply chains. Uh, it also means maybe that we see reshoring because mm -hmm. if I'm ordering something, um, maybe it's easier and faster uh, to have it made near me. You know, like mm -hmm. we're so used to ordering from Amazon and getting it in two days or next day. Yeah. Maybe I don't want to wait six weeks for something to come from overseas. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not. Maybe shipping will will you know improve to such an extent that it still makes sense to manufacture in other places, mm -hmm. faraway places. I don't know, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I think it will have um, a big big effect on the industry, and I, I think quite the reverse. I mean, so fifteen twenty years ago we were lamenting the loss of, you know, there were, there were no people learning tailoring. There were no young mm -hmm. kids the, 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 the tailor shops had gone away. There was, we were, there was a real brain drain and there was a real sort of, there's no next generation. And so it's really encouraging to me uh, to meet people like you. And, and you mentioned Matthew Paluzzo and, and other younger people that are interested in the craft and interested in learning to make things with their hands and make things themselves. Um, and it's not something that we saw just a few years ago. So it's, I find it very encouraging. Yes, it is. That's, that's definitely true. And we see it in different industries as well. Other industries are also starting to pay more attention to things that are handmade. So, and also like with food industry as well, everything has to be organic. Everything has to be, you, ha you, know, you need to know who grew Farm grew to them. table. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So what sort of, um, what sort of a time frame do you see for, for the development of made to measure, uh, or as I called it a few days ago, made to figure, um, to reach such a level where it's pretty much bespoke. It just isn't made by your local tailor or your, your personal tailor, but it's, you could say the figuration is nailed to the millimeter. It's, it's exactly, or perhaps even better in terms of fit, and I believe production as well, than, than something that a normal, uh, regular personal tailor would do. What is the time frame for that to reach that, you think? I would have said just two years ago, we were much further away. Um, and, and, you know, you, I, you may not know that my first experience with sort of body scanning and this kind of technology was 12 or 13 years ago already, where we started mm -hmm. body scanning for made to measure. And things progressed at a relative snail's pace. Mm -hmm. The pandemic occurred at a time where 
I mean, it just so happened that a lot of things came together to push technology further, mm -hmm. um, including crypto mining using graphics cards. So suddenly there's a giant market for GPUs that are used in 3D and, um, and, and just, you know, the pandemic making everybody go virtual and think about how do we fit and how do we make things without physically being in the same room. So mm -hmm. it's sped it up exponentially. So I'm not even sure when, but it could be within six months or a year. It's moving that fast. Wow. I mean, we personally, I'm working on some projects that we had started beta testing before the pandemic that we're about to get very aggressive in terms of testing on real bodies again, but it's going to happen real fast. Testing on real bodies sounds more severe than it actually is. It sounds like you're about to do some chip implant or something. Well, it's, so it's very different either doing in 3D or doing mm -hmm. it on, on forms. You know, I have several yes. different sizes of Alvin on forms in my studio. And, and mm -hmm. you know, we and I'll do things like, you know, pat out the breasts to drape mm -hmm. things to see how the pattern has to change as the breast gets larger or smaller, you know, stuff mm -hmm. like this. But that's still a very controlled environment. And it's mm -hmm. very, very different when it's actually a, a, a human bone and mm -hmm. flesh soft and, and, and malleable and they change. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's a totally different thing than sort of the theoretical exercise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In that process of, so imagine that the technology is there. We, you, you can have, uh, you have all the algorithms that you, that one needs to develop a perfect pattern for any type of figure. But then you also have the market response. You need, you have all the marketing of that. You have the, the consumer side of, okay, how, what is their interaction? What is, how do they get to that? You know, all of those connections. What do you think are the biggest challenges from bringing a technology that is developed, like let's say uh, in the lab to the market so that the market can interact with it in ways that it doesn't mess around because you know some technologies are made in such way that if the end user doesn't doesn't use it correctly the technology kind of like doesn't fully work what are some of the challenges there you you think will it be just as easy as going online and just doing a scan or do we need can we scan it with our phones do we need like machine what what what, what is the infrastructure looking like well so the whole scanning was that was one of the things that was a big barrier because in order to get accurate results you needed these big expensive mm -hmm. booth scanners like when we bought them 12 years ago 13 years ago i think they were two hundred thousand dollars a piece wow. and, and and very difficult to to you know put up and take down mm -hmm. and, and travel with and we knew that phone scanning was going to come and it's now i mean it's not perfect and there's issues mm -hmm. but for many cases, it's good enough mm -hmm. to make clothing off of. And it will continue mm -hmm. to improve. But um, the big impediments are not just consumers and getting consumers to understand it and trust it uh, mm -hmm. and want to do it. And as one of one of our e-com people say, you know, our customers think, you know, email is, is cutting edge and have trouble with their shopping cart. So you think they're going to scan themselves with a phone? Uh -uh. Mm -hmm. um, but also just us as an industry saying, we've always done it this way. We've done this this way for 130 years, like getting people to change your thinking about stuff, um, mm -hmm. changing legacy systems, especially, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the manufacturers that are left have been around for a long time. 
we have software that was installed in 1982, maybe. Uh, mm. We want wow. to bring in new technology, but mm. it can't interface with the legacy system. So what do we mm. do about it? It's, it's a heavy lift. One, one thing I'm curious about is, so you know people buy clothes every day. And the if you really take the population, the majority of people, they don't really complain that much about the fit of their clothing because generally patterns are okay unless you have a professional eye and you're like, you know, seeing everything that's wrong. But the average person worldwide has enough choice and enough gar shops to go to find something that fits them or, or you know, suits them well. What is really the benefit for companies who are selling these products? Because I can understand if you develop something like a technology like that, I'm going to be really happy because then I can, you know, buy all my clothing and it's going to be a perfect fit. You know, I'm not going to be fussy anymore about why this is pulling that way or that way. But for the person or the company that needs to manufacture this and they're doing fine, they're selling enough, they're making the millions of profit a year. Why on earth should I go for a fancy algorithm? And I'm not opposed to this. I'm just putting like a, a, a devil's advocate hat on. Why on earth should a company go for a fancy algorithm that, that satisfies a perfect fit need for a smaller segment of the population um, when they have to change, like you say, all the legacy software and all the machines that ha are maybe not compatible with it, make new investments and all of that. What is it in for them, would you say? I won't quote specific numbers because I don't know them. Um, but all you need to do is look at, for example, the return rates on e-com for clothing, which are somewhere in the range of 50%. Mm-hmm. And what it costs to companies when a consumer will order three of something to keep one and send the other two back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also the amount of waste produced by the fashion industry by producing clothes that never end up being sold. Correct. By eliminating these things and by learning to produce, because of course, you know, to produce 60,000 of something, you can do it very, very efficiently and fast. To produce mm -hmm. one of something that's individualized is not. Mm -hmm. But to rethink the way that you manufacture and sell in order mm -hmm. to accommodate the one, to be centered mm -hmm. around the single unit rather than the 60,000 of something mm -hmm. and, and make your processes efficient to do that one. Mm -hmm. um, that, in my opinion, is the future. And if you don't get on board with that, mm -hmm. you won't be in business for very long. I see. So the main point it really is, is waste management. That's really the main aspect of it waste in terms of, of clothing but also waste in terms of money and shipping and time and of waste course, in general yes. yes okay yeah of course waste will then eventually result in in the in the money you're losing as well i i hate the word sustainability because it's become so overused and, and yeah. you know we're taught now talk about greenwashing but it really is about mm -hmm. the sustainability mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that makes sense that makes sense and you said you said that maybe in in the next six months that technology can already be available as that's going really fast, developing really fast. Do you think the transition period for a lot of companies to take on a technology like that is going to be equally fast, or do we need another ten years with the companies to just take that on board? I, I think 
it will be a few of us will come out early with mm -hmm. things and we've already tried and and the problem with some of this is like when we came out with the body scanners and we tried it and it was a disaster you know mm -hmm. a lot of people said we tried it once it was horrible we'll never touch it again and you mentioned yeah, yeah. 3d and they're like oh <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but the thing is with this kind of technology you've got to use it you've got to fail you've got to be okay mm -hmm. with failing mm -hmm. um the, the the companies that are making the scanners and the scanning software mm -hmm. aren't mind readers mm -hmm. and they don't know how I'm going to use the end product of the scan. So I need to use it and try to use it in my work and then give them the feedback saying, mm -hmm. Hey, this is where I have problems so that they can improve. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a real challenge sort of making a use case in a company saying, I need to spend money on a tool that doesn't even work. And mm -hmm. won't even work and won't be commercialized for another five years just because I need to help them make it better so that someday mm -hmm. it will work. Mm -hmm. And and we're in that process right now where we're actively working with companies that make the scanners or make the computer software or make the things and say, this is what I need mm -hmm. to make me successful. And then once, you know, once it's come onto the market and shown that it works and that the computer consumers start to believe in it and trust in it and other mm -hmm. companies start to believe and trust in it, then other people will get on board. Mm -hmm. You know, it just takes a few leaders. Um, yeah. And then everybody else starts to run. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. Now <clears throat> learning, learning in a tailoring shop, um, you know, the, the techniques that are traditionally used and kind of like going through an apprenticeship, I noticed that there was a lot of emphasis on um, things are done as they've always been done. I hate to say the sentence because it makes me sound just very cliche, you know, but, but you know, there is, a, there is a truth to that. There is a reason why things are done the way they, they are done forever. You know, th that's, that's the whole point of tradition. You know, some things remind us of certain dangers that if we deviate from them things will go wrong so be safe and just do what's always been done um but i thought that that was just unique to maybe one or two shops but i very quickly noticed that many shops have this um approach and the younger generation that is learning in those shops kind of like also takes on board those those uh traits let's say and and i understand that a, a whole large part of it is time is money when you become a coat maker trouser maker whatsoever you really don't have time to mess around with like you know thinking how you can fold something nicer or you know make it get the money pay your rent pay your whatever feed your family what i'd like to know is why first of all do factories innovate and what are the driving factors for them to innovate? Is it just purely economics? Is or, or are there other factors that force them almost, uh, create a necessity, an urgent necessity for them to innovate? And when they do innovate, what should I imagine the process of innovating within a small part of the factory, maybe changing of machinery or changing of a schedule or whatsoever? How does that look like? Who leads those projects? Who are the leaders? Who's who's the person who says who initiates all of that? Your wow. smile, your your smile, your smile tells me you have a lot of answers. Oh, I have a lot of answers. <laughs> Please um, shoot. 
because that's a really big, big, big question and statement. And it's so back when I was at Samuelson and Samuelson mm -hmm. was doing things the way that they had done them for a long time. And the only time they had ever changed the way they were doing it, because either Zenya or Canali was doing something new and they went, oh, we better do that, too. Um, but it was still very much the same way that things had been done for a very long time. Yeah. And my mentor at the time had the foresight to tell me that you need to go out in the world and see that there's a lot of different ways to make things mm -hmm. at the high level, at the low level, in between. And after you've gone out and spent many years seeing different ways of doing things, then you'll be ready to come back. Mm -hmm. And man, was he right. And I left there and went to a company that was importing from factories all over the world. So all of a sudden, I found myself on a plane going literally around the world until you end up at home, mm -hmm. seeing factories all over the place and seeing a hundred different ways and ways I'd never imagined of doing things. And it really put the whole la legge questa, this is the way to do it, <laughs> on its ear. And so, you know, that was my um, indoctrination into the idea that things can be done differently, whether it's for economics, whether it's to get a better result, whether it's uh, make things faster, easier, cheap, or just, just different. Um, we're constantly doing that. You know, this week we, we were playing with sleeve heads and just the different combinations of materials and foam and felt and this and that and canvas. And I mean, there's no... There's no magic recipe. There's no definitive answer to anything in all this. It's all subjective. And, you know, you were asking about, well, who leads this? Who change management is tough, mm -hmm. especially in factories, especially with tools mm -hmm. where you go on a factory floor and say, either I want you to sew this differently now. Mm -hmm. I can't do that. <laughs> What are you talking about? Or I want you to use this new tool, or I want to take away that tool you're using and give you something different. And very often it's met with, it's impossible. It can't be done. What are you saying? And so to lead that process mm -hmm. can be a real challenge. Um, what's fun is often six months later, you go back and say, you know, this new thing that I gave you, I'm going to take away it now. And, and they're like, no, you can't. I can't live without it. Um, I guess it's just having gone through that. Um, and in my career, one thing that helped a lot, especially when I was traveling to those other countries uh, and trying to get them to do something different. Because mm -hmm. they'd be like, well, if, if, if you think it could be done, show me. And, and to be able to sit down at a machine and actually show them and teach them yourself. Because mm -hmm. not only, you know, it shows them, yes, it is possible. But they're mm -hmm. a lot less art likely to argue with you next time mm -hmm. you ask them to do something. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so you know, it, for me, it was absolutely critical that I could sit down and do every single operation in a factory myself, mm -hmm. um, and then and then that gives me the confidence of leading that change. Because mm -hmm. um, typically, if I'm asking for something different, it's because I've sat down on a sewing machine or at a press and I've done it a few times in different ways to see the easiest way. Mm -hmm. and most consistent way I could figure out of doing it. So it wasn't just some caprice. I'm not just saying, let's do this differently just because I feel like it, but mm -hmm. there's a reason. Mm -hmm. Would you say that, well, let me ask it another way. Who, who do you think 
on on a factory floor let's say on a bigger scale who do you think will be probably the most resistant to to any form of change would you say it's the people like the 5000 people the accountants the accountants <laughs> no the, the most resistant are usually the people on the machines themselves because they get used right. to doing something some way they're comfortable um, mm -hmm. In factories, most of them have some kind of incentive program where they're on some kind of piecework or bonus scale where the more they make and the less mistakes they make, the more money they may take home. And so mm -hmm. they want to protect what they mm -hmm. see as their skill and their money and their, their output. Um, mm -hmm. So when you ask them to do something different, it's very frightening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I, I, I imagine, you know, it takes away your edge now because... It took me like six months to to do this really quickly, and now you're. I have to go back and be less yeah. productive. What the hell? So okay, so having the right incentives in the right place, I guess, helps. How much realistically? So I I don't know if if well, I assume you've you've had you've been following multiple companies in throughout the years uh, with whom you've been working. What ha what has been the average rate of innovation? And by innovation, I mean a process changed or uh, something got completely eliminated or something new got completely introduced. What was the average rate of, of factories introducing something, reshuffling something um, throughout the years? We're constantly doing it. Constantly. I mean, that's, that's, that's you know, 50% of my job. We're constantly right. adapting, and if it, and maybe it's not necessarily new, but new to mm -hmm. us, or a different mm -hmm. approach, or slightly, you know, it's maybe not completely out of thin air innovation, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. we're constantly, constantly, because we we have new fabrics, new finishes, mm -hmm. new things all the time mm -hmm. that we've never sewn before, we've never we've never seen before. Every single day, there's something on the sewing floor that. Is, is new to us that something's going on and we don't know how to fix it. We need to address it. So it's, mm -hmm. it's constant. You learn something new every single day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you think that when, when a company starts to innovate, like you say, uh, they make a change because Xenia did it or, or I don't know, Berluti did it or whatsoever. Do you think that when you have a lot of competition and every company is doing something else, um, that that automatically forces everyone to innovate? Or do you think, no, some just simply won't budge? They just stay and stick to what they have done? There are some that just stick to what they've done because they're good at it and, and because that's what they do. You know, there's not a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, but in the industry, in any given sector, you know, you're always watching your, your competitions trying to evolve, is trying to improve, is doing stuff. You've got to stay abreast of what they're doing mm -hmm. um, and, and what the market is demanding. And, and other, otherwise, you get left mm -hmm. in the dust. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, so, and so what is the... Do those factories also have like a training program, like, you know, a school where if you want to work there, you first have to learn the entire process in their way? Is, or do they just learn on the, on the work floor? 
It, it depends on the factory, depends on, on the level of production. Most of the higher end factories, yes, they have a, a training school or a training period mm -hmm. um, where you go through. You know, when I started at Samuelson, I, I had to learn all the operations. That, that wasn't necessarily typical. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely there's an evaluation period. Uh, some more industrial ones, you come in and the engineers and people study your hands, study your dexterity, study how you handle, like there's pegboards and stuff that we give mm -hmm. them to sort of watch the fingers and say, mm -hmm. okay, you'd be good at this or you'd be good at that. And then we, you know, we give them training in specific areas. Right. Um, it's and, and some people come in and it's clear they're just an operator and they'll just do an operation and so. Mm-hmm. And then other people come in and, and I go, hmm, there may be potential here. We haven't discovered it. They haven't discovered mm -hmm. it. They're not sure what they're good at yet. So let's take them through a lot of things and just watch mm -hmm. and see where they mm -hmm. flourish. Right, right. I guess spotting talent on that scale is is just a complete different, is, is, is a whole operation by itself, right? So I was helping put up a factory in Mexico mm. and we were on the side of a mountain um, where there were sheep and goats and not much else and a little village that had like 60% unemployment mm -hmm. and nobody had seen a sewing machine in their lives before. And we had to basically hire 500 people and teach them how to make suits. Right. And it really was a process, like literally from going from an empty building that we built yeah. to having a suit, a factory producing upwards of 600 suits a day mm. where we, you know, we'd take a group of people every day and evaluate and some would stay and some would not. And then and we teach them a job mm -hmm. until they got really good at that job. And then we teach them another job until they got really good at that job. And then we'd have them teach the next group of people, the first job they learned mm -hmm. and you, you roll this forward and, and naturally certain people emerge as better at many things. Mm -hmm. And and then that's where you find your leadership and your, your future supervisors and things. Um, mm -hmm. But that's really, and it's funny because I was talking to somebody who has a shoe shop in, in Los Angeles and he operates exactly the same way. Um, and, and you find eventually there are people who will learn all of it and those are the people mm -hmm. who end up running it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> you know, I, I've always wondered what the difference is between someone who who learns like through a traditional apprenticeship, like you have a master, you learn their way, you their process, you get to work on the things they work on, you know, you, you get to see a limited scope, let's say. But but there is still some some weird richness to that, right? Because you get because it's on a smaller scale, it's everything is more intense. Like your your interaction with the people, the two people around you, may be a bit more intense, or the, the the things you're working on, you have a bit more time to focus on. What would you say are the main differences between someone who's been taught traditionally in a in a small workshop versus someone who's been learning on the factory school, let's say, where everything is a small, larger scale and kind of like the, the, the processes may change all the time because an old master may say, hey, I've been doing this since I was 20 and now I'm 70. But maybe a factory will say, look, this decade we're doing this. 
next decade, we are going to work with scanners. And the decade after that, we're all in, in the metaverse designing uh, 3D models. So uh, what do you think are the main differences there? The benefit of learning in a factory scenario is, is repetition. Mm -hmm. um, if you learn the traditional apprenticeship way where you make a coat start to finish, you've, you've made a pocket once. Mm -hmm. If you learn in a factory, you're making pockets all day, every day, and then mm -hmm. you quickly become very, very good and very quick at making pockets, but only mm -hmm. a pocket. You don't have the holistic view. On the other hand, um, it, it's, it's interesting because I, I believe you had a conversation with a colleague of mine. He, uh, I brought him over for, from Europe and um, I said, you're going to live in my house and work with me for a month. And I'm going to try to teach you as much as I can from my own experience in a month. And, and the benefit is that it's taken me 26 or 30 years to, to come to what I'm about to give you. And a lot of learning and a lot of experimentation, and a lot of mistakes and a lot of failures and a lot of stuff. And I'm going to hand it to you mm -hmm. in, in a nice little package. And hopefully you'll take that package and add your own unique perspective and take on it. So you had better be better than me quickly mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. take what what i have known which is finite and add another element to it mm -hmm. student exceeds the master sort of thing mm -hmm. um, so in that environment you're you're gaining the experience of mm -hmm. of that person and their failures and and um, innovations uh, mm -hmm. and then adding to it how do you think that works and the reason why why i ask that is for example, if, if, if you and me would sit down and you would show me, for example, how to cut a canvas for a garment, right? You are not showing me how to cut a canvas in a garment at that point. You are showing me how to cut 20,000 canvases that you have cut in those 20 years all compressed into one. So it's an extremely dense canvas for one garment you know what i mean exactly what i take over from you is just that one canvas i don't get to i don't get those tw twenty thousand canvases that you've made and you've got in your mind so then i i kind of like have two roots i'm like okay this guy has made twenty thousand canvases so this has to be really good and i'm gonna really hold on to this tight so so that i make sure that i you know I, I respect all that knowledge kind of like infused in me. But then there is also the other part which is which says, look, man, that guy has made 20,000 canvases. I haven't. So all the knowledge that that person has is only going to be worth that one canvas that they, they're giving me. And it's really up to me to then go and, and learn another 50,000 canvases so that I have the same density. So... Do you think that the knowledge one acquires over many, many, many years and hands down to a person really allows someone to surpass them in the full sense? Or does it just give them a good foundation to, to then start their own journey? And then the question is, if it's the latter, if it just gives them a good foundation to start the journey, then... How much is the knowledge of a master really worth? 
to to a student. You know what I mean? I'm kind of like making a web here of of of, of a bit of a com complex thing. But um, do you know what I mean? So I think it depends on the master. I think it depends on whether the 20,000 canvases he's made, he's always made the same way, mm -hmm. or whether he's made 5,000 this way and 5,000 that way and 5,000 another way, mm -hmm. and can communicate, well, when I'm making it this way, it's because I want this effect, but I can also make it another way to get another effect, and here's different ways, and here's something I did for a very long time, and it, I struggled with it, and I eventually mm -hmm. found a better way of doing it so I can save you the struggle of of doing it that way um mm -hmm. or i had certain challenges doing something else you know it depends on on whether he's failed a lot and mm -hmm. to com communicate the failure and and the results of the experimentation and the research mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you you mentioned in in the beginning of the conversation that you had all these questions and you went to your dad for the answers and and he basically taught you how to think through your own answers. I, I, I really felt when I was doing my apprenticeship that there, there really wasn't, there, there was zero time spent with the apprentice in thinking through problems. And the main emphasis was just, look, learn the process and you automatically, magically will be able to kind of like go through some of the problems. Now, there is a very tiny, small amount of truth to that. If you have some form of a foundation, you can kind of like crawl your way through through problems. But if you really are shown the process of thinking through unknowns, you know, unknown unknowns, then then you can, it doesn't matter what your foundation is because you'll, you'll be, just be a cat. No matter how they throw you, you'll just land on your four feet. How do you think that the process of... Um, let's say, um, kind of like technical thinking can be developed in, in the fullest sense w with an apprentice and, and can be encouraged above all. What would, you, what would you say after all these years, having uh, seen all these different garments and worked with all these different people, you know? Um, I, I'm sure you yourself as a technical thinker have had moments where you were like, how do they not see this in their minds you know can't they just like you know flip this over that and then do this and you know how do we as tailors develop with the people around us our apprentices and all of that this the skill of technical thinking it's it's funny i wonder if ruben actually mentioned that to you in your conversation because one of the first things i told him when he came was that i could show you how i draft a sleeve where I could mm -hmm. show you how I draft a collar, which is the result of a lot of experimentation and a lot of study. But I'd rather show you my process. Mm -hmm. And and so that's what we did. I said, okay, let's evaluate. Uh, this is how I make collars. Because there's still a lot of stuff that I do that I've never fully mm -hmm. explored and fully pulled on the thread of like, let's dismantle this mm -hmm. and see why and see if there's a better way. So I said, Welcome to my process. We're going to do things together and you'll see how I'm going to evaluate. Okay. Is this way of making a two piece top collar the best way? Or is there, let's make a bunch of collars and put them together and try things out. Uh, mm -hmm. Or no, I'm not getting the drape of the front of the sleeve I want. So I'm going to base the sleeve in them six, 12, 15 times until I get, and I will show you my process. So instead of me just showing you a recipe, mm -hmm. you can go in and, and apply that process and say, 
I want a particular result. How do I get there? Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think more than anything, that was what, um, helped me, um, in my career was mm-hmm. just that process of discovery and experimentation. Um, and, and some people are better at than others. Mm-hmm. And I've also been of the, the, the mindset that if I think I know something, Mm-hmm. instead of trying to prove it to myself mm-hmm. i try to disprove it disprove it yeah if yeah. you can throw everything you can at it to try to prove that you're wrong and you still can't prove you're wrong mm-hmm. you're probably right mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but maybe yeah. not there's still yeah, a chance yeah, yeah. you could be wrong and that's again that's another one of my big things is like and and, and somebody else said it better than i would and i wish i could remember exactly how he said it um I was watching a video about illustration and he said, you know, you've got to practice, you got to practice, do it, do it, do it and post it online and post it to forums, but don't listen to the people who tell you it's good. Only listen to the people who tell you it's crap because (laughs) as soon as you're happy, as soon as you think you're good, you get complacent and you stop Mm -hmm. improving. You Mm -hmm. have to never be happy with where you at. You have to constantly want to be better and constantly Mm -hmm. push yourself to be better. And I absolutely believe that. Mm-hmm. never never think you're right never think you're done never think um mm-hmm. but that's you know in a sense that i had been asked to write textbooks about tailoring a number of times mm-hmm. and i was hesitated because i said with any luck five years from now i will think that everything i know today will be completely wrong mm-hmm. so if i write a textbook today in five years i will say oh, i was so full of shit everything's wrong mm until I started trying to learn 3D modeling and every tutorial on, on the internet is completely off because they've changed the interface four <laughs> times since the video was written. So I thought, well, maybe, maybe tailoring doesn't advance that as quickly. So <laughs> maybe, maybe it's time to write a book <laughs> or, yeah. or do a video series or something. Mm. Um, Are you planning but, to write a book? I don't know if a book, I was initially thinking a book. Um, I think video is more, the better, Mm. it's easier to communicate things. It's easier to show. Mm -hmm. So will it be a series of videos? I think so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I said it was a project I would do when I retired, but, um, uh, I'm probably not going to retire. I'm going to die working, and so. Well, if even if 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 you would reach the age of retirement, we would then see your videos probably in the metaverse or beyond. So, <laughs> so you're you're fairly young. So it's going to take a while then. Uh, <laughs> what if if you would if you would if someone would ask you, uh, um, Jeffrey, uh, what do you think are three important skills for me to develop? to really become a technical thinker so that I approach my work really like an open-minded engineer. And with every product pr- product that I kind of like uh, produce, I become a more knowledgeable person, um, a more uh, creative person. Uh, and at the same time, uh, manage to kind of like transfer that knowledge into something that others can benefit from. What three skills would you would you highlight? I wouldn't personally because I don't claim to be the best technical thinker. Um, but I would say I saw an, a, an ad for a masterclass recently 
mm-hmm. you know, the, the internet, the masterclass yeah, site. Yes. Um, and it was somebody who managed to put into words very eloquently and, and very well things that I had thought about for 25 years and, and just sort of encapsulated it in 30 seconds. I went, yes, this. <laughs> yeah. um, so I wouldn't tell you three things. I would say, go look up Neil deGrasse Tyson on Masterclass. Mm-hmm. Um, I still don't know enough about him. or so It's one of those things where I've said, I got to sit down and watch. I've got to sit down and read his things or whatever. But what he said spoke to me about exactly that, about oh, is, technical is, is, thinking. Does he say the trick is to know enough about the subject to, 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 to know you know something? I don't know. But then to know in, enough to then say, I don't know enough, something like that. It's possibly, but he said a lot of the things yes. and, and things like I, I have always said about try to prove yourself wrong or try mm-hmm. to, you know, how mm-hmm. to think about these things, how to, mm-hmm. um, there is also a course at MIT that they're now offering online about design thinking. Right. Like it, it's just different ways of, of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, okay. So here, no, I'll, I'll take that back. If you're going to do one thing, travel the world, go travel to places, go to places, go to Burma, go to, mm-hmm. go to somewhere weird that they're still not Westernized mm-hmm. and go live with the people. Don't live mm-hmm. in a hotel. Um, it's, it's really shocking. The first time you go live in a very distinct culture to realize that there are other people out there who may look like you or not um, may seem that you know they're human beings and you we all sort of it, it, was, it was amazing how I became aware of the thought that I thought that everybody would think or act or we'd, we'd have this real common sort of way of thinking or being mm-hmm. or living that and it's not true and mm-hmm. and being exposed to different cultures and and how they think differently about things and you go wow it, it can really shake you to the core and mm-hmm. i think that was really good for me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To, to to think that maybe i'm not right about this mm-hmm. maybe maybe we take this for granted or we think that we're absolutely right about x and maybe it's mm-hmm. not true mm-hmm, mm-hmm. do you see yourself as a tailor or 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 how do you see yourself professionally good question I mean, I suppose it's it's funny because when you know I mentioned that episode where where the the ladies came in to where I was working twenty five years ago and and saw me sewing a suit and said, "Oh, you're a tailor." And I said, well, "Well, I guess. I mean, I'm making a suit, so does that make me a tailor? I I, I guess so." I. So also back then my goal one day was to be the head of but we call them designers in the industry Mm -hmm. and that's an outdated term because now people think of designers as something else but back then Mm -hmm. the guy who made the patterns and told the factory how to sew and did all this Mm -hmm. stuff was the designer and my goal was to be the designer at either samuelson or hickey freeman someday Mm -hmm. and now here i am at both um and and so it's it's provoked this period of now what, what's next? And mm-hmm. just thinking about what I want to do with the next 20 years of my life. 
Mm -hmm. Am I still doing this? And what is this exactly that I'm doing? And what do I see myself as? So it's, um, mm -hmm. I've been going through an existential discovery lately. So <laughs> sorry to get all meta. Um, no, that's, you really, that's okay. when you say, what are you? It's like, that's, that's, that's a really loaded question. <laughs> no, well, well, you see, so I, I've thought about this for myself and, you know, I don't have the, the, the many years uh, of, of professional experience that you have, but I'm still in the beginning of, of my career really. But I thought, you know, am I really a tailor? And then I'm like, yes, well, I do tailoring every day. But I'm not really the tailor that you would think of when you describe tailor in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm just making suits. Because I tend to think, try to kind of like think about, okay, what role does tailoring play in society? You know, if, if tailors would feel some sort of an honor from, from, a, from the public point of view, why would they feel kind of like honorable because of their profession? So I think about it from, from that aspect. I think about, you know, what the hell are we doing when we are making stuff? Because, you know, we are not making stuff just by, by producing something material, but something internal is also happening, you know? My, my dad told me something interesting. He's a painter, and he said one day I was painting, and it was like a summer afternoon, and I had the window open next to me, and I was painting this tree, and then I, I heard this crow from, the, from outside. And he said for one second, just like very quickly, I felt as if, because he was very close to the painting and it was a big painting. He said, I felt as if I was in the painting and the sound came from within the painting. And I thought that is weird, you know? So um, you're connecting to something that you don't understand probably. And, and, I, and I guess I have that with tailoring because, you know, what am I doing when I'm making a shoulder pad? You know, I'm kind of like doing so many things. You know, I mean, you're building algorithms. You know that describing every point of, of decision is it can become like, you know, an endless book almost of, of, of processes that all happen in one second, you know? Then I'm like, boy, I'm also a bit of an engineer because, you know, I tend to have the approach of, okay, I'm not going to just stick to a process. So... I don't know if I'm a tailor or I'm an engineer or I'm a designer or, or I'm a thinker or whatsoever yet. Um, well, what is a tailor? Is it the guy who hems your pants at a dry cleaner? Yeah, that's a good Duncan one. Or is it Duncan Quinn that has a shop that makes clothes, but he doesn't sew a button on? Or is yeah. it, you know, what really is a tailor? I don't know. I, I really don't know. And I think, and I think one of the reasons why, uh, at least from my perspective, why tailoring has kind of like hasn't become an industry that you can compare to sports or athletics, you know, or film or music or whatsoever, is that it's not very clear what, what a tailor is apart from the obvious things that people usually don't want to associate with, you know? If I go to Savaro and I'm like, hey, you guys are the same tailors as the dry cleaners, respect to the dry cleaners, of course, but they're going to be like, no, they're going to be offended, you know? But if I would say to someone at the dry cleaners, hey, you're a tailor, you know, Savile Row, really good stuff. And they're going to be maybe like they feel elevated. So it's like, well, you know, you're kind of like doing the same thing. But here, here's a question I have and, and then I'll, I'll do a speed round with you and I'll wrap it up. So there is a there is a quote from Bruce Lee and, and I really like this quote. Uh, and it said and he's, he's apparently he says, uh, I, I'm not I'm not afraid of the person 
who knows a thousand kicks or ten thousand kicks. I'm afraid of the person who who knows one kick but has practiced it a ten thousand times. So you being someone who understands the process of repetition, but also being someone who understands the process of experimentation. Which one speaks more to you? Which one do you think is in general more valuable in 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 one's career? Probably repetition. Repetition. Um, for the same reason he said, you know, it, if you can do 15 things poorly mm -hmm. or one do do one thing masterfully, mm -hmm. I would rather do one thing masterfully than 15 things poorly. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Um, shall we do a speed round? Sure. All right. Okay. So most influential person. Uh, what in general to me uh, in your career in your career Leonard Bjorklund okay okay and uh, was this the same person who said make if if uh, no make new okay so, no but so, that uh, that person earns points for that too okay 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 um, what's what's your what's your current source of inspiration biggest source of inspiration. For better or for worse, Instagram. Instagram, really? So what? This is interesting. So why? Why? Tell me. Um, partly because I live in Rochester, New York, and there's just not shops and there's not stuff, so I don't get to see stores and see things and see people. Um, mm -hmm. It, in fact, Instagram can be terrible because I'll see things that I like and that inspire me. I'll go, God, I wish I could do this, and I try to do it, and I try to do it, and I can't. But you don't know how much they've pinned up the dummy behind it, and it, you don't know how much is Photoshop. You don't. Um, where I mean, my real, I where I would charge my batteries twice a year is is going to Italy for either PT or Idia Biella or one of these shows, and just sit in, in one of those you know sidewalk cafes and just watch people. And watch mm -hmm. their clothes and see what they wear and how they wear it, and, mm -hmm. and a speed round. Okay. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Tradition. Tradition. Yeah. Where's the question? Oh, that's it. Tradition. So, first thing that 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 you that comes up your mind if you hear tradition. I. Again, there's a German quote that I'm trying to remember and I can't, but um, it was something to do with um, not venerating the ashes, but um, and knowing the things that came before you in order for you to go to new places or something. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm quite inarticulate when I speak, but it, a tradition is a very important thing to me, mm -hmm. not to cleave to, but to to serve as a basis and a foundation. Got it. Um, the future of Bespoke. Right. Right. The best garment you ever unpicked. Yeah. Uh, it was. It was. It was factory made. I'm sorry to say. In fact, there's a couple of them. Um, 
but one of the factories is now closed, sadly. Uh, the other one is in Fano, um, mm-hmm. called St. Andrews. And, and can you briefly describe what it was that impressed you so much that you would say is one of the best garments you, you unpicked? There was an article published in 1932, I think, um, which talked about hand tailoring. And it talks a lot about, you know, it's, there's a lot of mediocre hand sewing. And so is it, is, is mediocre hand sewing better than good machine sewing? Mm-hmm. Um, machines have made things very consistent and very good and very even. Um, things that are handmade very often or not and sometimes that's the appeal mm-hmm. i've very very rarely seen things done with hand stitching that was so consistent it almost approaches machine stitching wow and wow. and so I've, i can think of a few garments a couple jackets and a shirt that i own mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like two shirts you know that that is a very interesting thing because Tailors do have something kind of like a natural resistance towards things that are machine made. You know, it's kind of it kind of like disgusts them, right? It's like, yeah, get that machine made bastard out of my way. But however, they do try to reach machine level precision, including myself, with hand sewing. And I think this is where it gets weird. You're trying. It's it, it's almost as if you're trying to become that thing that you hate the most. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's it's a very strange thing, and I don't know what to do with it. But but okay, okay. Um, the role of tailors in society. So, our clothes can be very important to us. And suits especially, because suits we associate with formal events, whether it's work or weddings or funerals or things. And um, so tailors provide a means of expressing oneself and covering oneself uh, for some of the most important events in our life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you, when you f- wear something for, for an occasion... Do you feel that occasion more than than you would if you were you would be appropriately dressed, but not really dressed for the occasion? Do you feel that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You connect to the occasion. You connect to the people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a sign of respect of the occasion and of the people around you. That's that's. I have to think about that. This is a very interesting thing. Okay. Um, the, the, the most difficult thing in tailoring for you? Some of these flimsy, lightweight, 220 gram, one by two fabrics that just don't take a shape or behave themselves. Mm-hmm. And would you say would you see that more from from a construction aspect or a cutting aspect? Both, both, both. Okay, but more construction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what What are you learning today? 
what is it that you're that you would say i'm in this year this is what i'm mainly learning in in general or in tailoring in general man in general what 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 is jeffrey learning nowadays you know if if we would be classmates and i'm like hey man what are you learning today you know or, or what's your main uh, what's keep what keeps you busy in your drafting mind? drafting how to create how to create patterns for bodies how to mm -hmm. rethink about how we draft patterns for bodies mm -hmm. um how we an analyze the shape of the body in order to create a two-dimensional pattern that will eventually clothe that body. I'm going through an entire paradigm shift in terms of mm -hmm. how that's done and how mm -hmm. things are measured. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Savile Row. Sorry? Savile Row. It's very important. Um, it's 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 very important to the tradition and heritage of our craft mm -hmm. um it's fortunate that they haven't forgotten it that they still know it um like it's very unfortunate that the company here hickey freeman has forgotten its heritage mm -hmm. um but like many who reach a pinnacle and i suppose that guy's comments about you know illustration and never get complacent can be directed at Savile Row they themselves, I think, became complacent. They mm -hmm. knew that they were the best in the world and they didn't advance and they didn't innovate and they didn't move as fast as some of the others. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's a lot of tailor shops in Italy that are far better than the ones in Savile Row mm -hmm. um, because they listened to the admirers and not the haters. And mm -hmm like it or not I, and i know for a fact that half of the people on several row hate me and the other half like me um part of it's because you know apparently angus cundy was not even aware that they were pad stitching their lapels by machine until i opened up a henry pool jacket and showed it on the internet and caused a bit of a commotion i have seen that post on your blog um well last but not least how would you describe yourself in in one word if you had to? Researcher. Researcher. Awesome, man. Hey, uh, thank you so much. I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. Uh, you've inspired me with uh, your approach uh, in the very first year of, of me starting tailoring. And the fact that I saw someone question every everything in a way that a researcher would do um, has been very, very beneficial to the development of my craft. So thank you for the time you've spent with me today. And uh, I look forward to part two. I'd love to do it. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. And that was Jeffrey. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to get in touch with Jeffrey or you'd like to see more of him, check out the links to his Instagram website and blog in the description of this video. If you have any thoughts, comments, or anything else you'd like to mention, please let us know, and we sure hope to see you again in the next episode. Until then, bye-bye.